If you brought a Bible, go ahead and open it to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. We will finish this book next week. And um, some of you all are aware that at the beginning of the fall and the spring series, we offer readers for the book, um, and we give a little bit of a, give you the, the sermon schedule and questions for your own personal um, devotion during the week and to kind of prepare you for this. And for the most part, we've been on schedule for the book of Ephesians. Um, as we come into Easter, we'll have two, Palm Sunday and Easter, that'll be sort of one-off on the on sermons and on, on their own, and then we'll head into the next eight to nine weeks or whatever's left of spring to look at um, Elijah and Elisha. And so we won't be doing readers for those, but if you're interested in the sermon um, you know, schedule, so you can kind of follow along, read ahead, uh, or if you just would like to do your own sort of uh, devotional through that, um, we can certainly offer that to you via email or something like that. But that's where we're headed as we um, get past Easter and as we look at the last two sermons here in uh, the book of Ephesians, which has been wonderful to spend this much time in it. So... Um, this morning, we're in part two of the armor of God, and so I'm going to read for us again, beginning in verse 10 of chapter 6. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word found in the book of Ephesians chapter 10, chapter 6, verse 10, excuse me. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word to us, and we pray now that as a, as a seed goes out into good soil, we pray that this word would go out into the good soil that you've prepared in our hearts, as it were, and that we would produce a fruit, that we would leave here changed people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I had a moment, an awesome moment, actually, of nostalgia this week that I really want to share with you. Um, and it, it, it came, I was driving down the road and I, I was listening uh, to the radio and um, a song from the Nirvana Unplugged album came on. And this is, for those that don't know, this is an album that was released in 1994. 
And uh, whether this, whether you have heard of it or what, that doesn't really matter. The point is, is it put me in a time travel like none other. And maybe you've got a song that does this or an album that does this or something, right? When it, when it gets played and it gets put on, just like nostalgia does, it just takes you back to that place. And I mean, for whatever reason, this album just did that. And I can tell you the day that I picked it up, we listened to it. We were actually, it was a Friday afternoon going to Cumberland County for the away football game that night. And we listened to the whole things about an hour drive. Um, I can almost tell you, I can tell you the shoes I was wearing. I can tell you the smells in the car. It's really weird how nostalgia sometimes works. It's almost like a homecoming of sorts when you think about how much it's able to really bring you back into a place. And, and, and in one sense, for me at least, like it just it does remind me a little bit of who I am and where I came from and all that stuff. Um, such is nostalgia. Perhaps it's the original AI. I don't know. Well, as we think about the armor of God this week and as we thought about it last week, there's a sense that the armor... Uh, is to do something similar and how it reinforces the gospel and its promises. However, unlike nostalgia, looking backward, which is what nostalgia does, the promises, right, the gospel itself, although true for us here, positionally forces us to look forward to the day when these promises are made in full. Um, they are true and they are full now, but they are also, uh, there's a day that we're waiting when these things will be completely full and true. And this is what the gospel does and the armor reinforces and wants to remind us of this reality that, that we would actually live in the present for what is ultimately true for us in the future. And again, we talk about positional and prog progressive sanctification. So just let's put the theological guns down for a second. We know that we are seen as God, as, as, as he sees Christ today, but there's coming a time that, that it's going to be, all things are going to be made new. And, and maybe this will help sort of settle that conversation for a second why I'm talking about it this way, which is why would we need armor then to remind us of what is true, already true for us now, but also going to be more true uh, in its fullest sense when Jesus returns? Well, the reason for that is because we don't have good experiences, or should I say it's not easy, um, as even was said earlier in our uh, confession of faith, right? Fighting with God's weapons don't come naturally, Jamie said. We don't know fully what it's like to live without sin. I don't anyway. So fighting with the weapons and being reminded that this is actually true for you now, that it will be in full in the future, is what the gospel tells me and that armor is pointing me in that direction constantly. I don't know about you, but sometimes I doubt. You're, there's coming a time when you won't do that anymore. For some of us, we're, we're, we're hurting. There are real wounds in our lives. There's coming a day where, where those tears will be wiped away. That's not today. And so while I start here, you know, where nostalgia sort of sends us into this back, warm, fuzzy experience that we have, and that can be a problem in and of itself. I don't know about you, but that, that doesn't really, the armor is challenging because I don't know what it fully means to be the person that God says that I am because of Christ. And so what the armor does is it reinforces that reality for us every step 
of the way. Because this is how, whether we're talking about the schemes of the devil, as we talked about last week, or any other temptation that comes at you, this is how that's defeated. This is how that is uh, being renewed in your life in the sense of, of, of knowing whether, whether there was failure. I can come and I can confess that and be reminded that the promises are still true for me. And T. Wright puts it this way, living out the gospel is the practice of bringing the future to bear in the present. To which I would add, and I don't know that we talk about this a whole lot in the church, but this requires our imagination. And didn't God give us imaginations? It's almost like we're not allowed to talk about that in the adult world anymore. But no. And even this idea of the armor that we'll see as it reinforces these promises, requires us by faith to, to, to believe that the way that God thinks about you this very moment is actually true, regardless of how you feel about yourself, regardless of what the circumstances are telling you, regardless of anything else that would try to cut across what is ultimately true and the promises of God. And as we said last week, this whole section is summary for Paul. And so to bring home the in Christ theme, our union with Christ is to know that this is already true. And so this armor then reinforces the reality of these promises and it reminds us of how God sees us and thus who we truly are in Christ. It is nothing short of identity language. And that's what I want us to see Continuing from last week where we looked at the nature of the battle and the plan for the battle in which Paul tells the Ephesian Christians to stand against the schemes of the devil or the evil one, we now look at the armor itself and how it works. So three things for our time. Satan's weapon of choice in battle, briefly got to look at that. Two, uh, the whole armor that is the gospel will actually will address the pieces that are laid out. And then some application um, uh, at the end, but all of this is really application. Um, and so I hope it's being received as that. But let's take this first one, Satan's weapon of choice in the battle. Um, you know, as the art of war by Sun Tzu says, you got to know your enemy. And he says a lot of things after that, but it's the bottom line is, you know, if you're going to go into battle against somebody, you got to know who you're fighting. And it's worth us before we get into the armor to revisit for a second what Paul assumes and what he knows. And, and that is what, what our adversary, what, what is the adversary's weapon of choice here? And it wouldn't be wrong if you're thinking it lies. You know, the Bible says that the devil is the, the father of all lies. And it wouldn't be wrong to say deceit. But I actually believe Genesis 3, when it says that the devil or the, or the serpent was more craftier than any other thing, uh, and, and that what the devil's primary weapon is, is to create doubt where truth exists. So if the whole armor of God is faith in the gospel, then Satan's most effective weapon isn't to flat out lie about the gospel message to Christians uh, who are in Christ, although he might do that. It's actually easier just to create enough doubt among God's people as to whether it's true. In other words, it's to get Christians to question or to doubt the love of God for them, to doubt his goodness to them, and to certainly think that he is withholding good things from his people. 
We have to go back to Genesis 3 and just revisit this for a second just to prove this point to you all. If you remember back in Genesis 3, the serpent, the text says, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say? Right? And so here's this sort of first, the first words of the serpent to Eve. Did God actually say? And that's really enough to sort of plant that seed of doubt for us. And this is exactly the battle, right, the church has faced and continues to face regarding God's word in Scripture in the first place, right? Did God actually say, fill in the blank? And for the first 500 years, right, we're dealing with big, solid theological truths, right? Did God actually say that Jesus is God? Did God actually say that you are saved by grace? Did God actually say that he is three in one? But even as we move throughout the ages, we get into more, uh, we might say, cultural issues like marriage, for example. Did God really say that marriage is between a man and a woman? Right? We're having that debate right now. And when we begin to recognize the tactic here, right, it creates this seed of doubt and it causes us to begin to question the reality or the truthfulness of the gospel. And what that does is it begins to get us to think this, well, you know, if he didn't say that, and maybe he didn't, what else am I missing here in this life? It isn't until Eve responds back with what she believes God said, adding, interesting enough, that they shouldn't even touch the fruit in her response, and then Satan comes in with this full lie here in verse 4. He said, you will not surely die. She says to him there, I'll go back to it. She says that God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. You won't fully, you won't, you won't die. And then here, becomes, here comes the hook, right? For God knows, this is the serpent again, verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Why is, that, why is that what gets her? Because what Satan is saying here is that God is actually keeping good things from you. Therefore, he cannot be trusted. And this, friends, is the heart, really, of all of our sin. That God is keeping something good from me. Therefore, he's not good. Therefore, I must have the thing that's going to make me happy. And so we can even come back to marriage. God did not say that marriage was between a man and a woman. He wouldn't say to notice something if you really loved that person and if it was really what's going to bring you happiness. He must be keeping something from me. Therefore, I must have this thing. If I'm really going to find happiness and joy in this world, we can look at money. God doesn't really care what you do with your money, we might think. We might think that the Bible doesn't really speak in the New Testament about what we should do as far as giving it away and how much. Besides, why wouldn't he want me to have the money and to spend it since I earned it? He's keeping something from me. And both of these examples, by the way, are not about marriage and they're not about money. They're actually about idols. They're about the ultimate thing that we want to craft our own lives around. And when our eyes are open to that, we can begin to see that, oh, this, this, is the, this is the purpose of the law. Because there isn't life in these things, guys. 
They have their purposes and they have their uses and their, their, their good things when they're done in the context and the way that God has instructed us to do them. Because he does want what's best for you. But there is no life there. And all along, what's going on behind the scenes, as it were, is Satan's weapon of choice, of, 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 of creating subtle doubt where there is truth, is having its effect. And when that happens, we begin to doubt God's goodness to us because he's clearly keeping something from us and he cannot be trusted. And so why would this be Satan's weapon of choice? And I think, you know, in some ways I already answered that question. It's so effective. And we can say in summary out of this whole book, you know, this is the one thing that will divide Christians. This will break up the church. This will isolate Christians. I'm just tired of all the rules. I don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. Or it'll disrupt the unity within the church as we take maybe tertiary issues and say, this is, these are non-negotiables to me. But I think there's something else here. Why he would use this weapon of choice, and it's because it's the only thing that can get you to really walk away from the gospel. Because it attacks, right? It attacks the place where God has communicated to you more than anything else, his love for you, his goodness to you, and that he has absolutely not withheld anything good from you. Even, even his own son. And this is why the gospel is the primary target for Satan and all of his schemes because the gospel is the primary message that tells us that God loves us. So before we move away from this first point, what's the one thing right now, just as we even sort of touched on the topic, what's the one thing right now that Satan could be using to get you to doubt God's goodness to you, his love, uh, that, 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 that you know, maybe he really can't be trusted is there a social issue out there that is really just driving the train on this for you? Or maybe it's something that has to do more scientific. I don't know. How does the cross come to us, as we'll see, and sort of help us put those things in perspective? And maybe we don't have both of these things figured out at this point. But what, what, what is certain and what, can, what, what, what can't be true is that God doesn't love us doesn't want what's best for us as we look at the cross, as we look at Jesus and what he did for us. So as you consider what it is that Satan might be using to get you to doubt God's goodness, and I would argue, right, the chances are you have armor built around that. That this is the thing uh, that you protect above everything else. Life is navigated around this thing. When people get close to it, you get angry. What is that? What is that thing? And would you be willing to even consider walking in faith, as it were, to offer that back to the Lord and say, I, I believe like in my nostalgia, in my experiences that this will bring life, but it never has. And I want to trust the promises of God that life is only found in Christ. And guess what? That's how the armor works. And that's where we go to now. So that's the first point. Satan's weapon of choice absolutely wants to create doubt where truth exists, but 
Let's go through that now as we look at the actual pieces of armor with our time remaining. The armor is, that is the gospel itself. As we look at the pieces of armor as Paul has laid out and as he quotes from Isaiah as we've read this morning, we need to keep in mind that all of them work together. It's why Paul says all, him, both times, the whole armor, the whole armor, the whole armor. They all work together to remind the Christian of one thing, and that is the gospel. The full armor of God, says Richard Koken, is simply faith in the gospel. All of the pieces point to aspects of the gospel's truth, as we'll see, because if Satan's primary weapon, again, is to get you to doubt God's goodness, to get you to doubt his love, then his primary target will be the gospel itself. And so first, let's go to the, the, the belt of truth here. Paul says in verse 14, Stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist. Like most belts, this one would have been made of leather or some, some tough material that Paul might be thinking of that held the whole outfit together. Except unlike the belt that I'm wearing now that you see, you wouldn't see this one on this soldier. It would be underneath all the things holding everything together. And in this sense, it's, it's sort of like this is, this is what is, 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 is closest to the individual. For Paul, it is truth that holds everything in place that you might not be able to see. At this point, many ask, as we think about this belt, is this God's truth as found in Scripture or kerneled in the gospel, sort of a capital T truth? Or is this talking about the subjective truth of like the, 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 the sincerity and the integrity of somebody, of a believer, that they are honest, that they're truthful? And while there is no definite article when we get into the Greek of this, in front of that word for truth, it's actually probably a good idea to hold both of those together. Why? Well, one, lack of integrity, lack of sincerity in an individual is nothing less than a foothold for the devil, which Paul has already talked about back in chapter 4. To be a deceitful person is to be someone who lives in darkness and not light. It is fertile ground for the lies of the adversary to be sown. At the same time, however... It is good to also see it as God's truth, capital T truth, that is foundational to the Christian and thus gives him or her a great deal of confidence as they go, what, into battle, as it were, or navigating life. And there is no greater foundational truth that houses all other truths than the gospel. All right, so this is the first piece of armor that Paul lays out, this belt of truth that is sort of hidden underneath the armor but holds everything together. Second, Paul says to put on the, the breastplate of righteousness. All of, uh, of all the pieces of armor, this one is argued to be the most prominent. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul says that faith and love are the breastplate. But here, as in Isaiah, it is righteousness that is the breastplate. And the word for righteousness in the Greek is also the same word for justification. What is more crucial to the, to the gospel than justification. At the same time, what is more deadly than to create doubt surrounding one's justification? And just real quick, what is justification? Well, justification answers the question, how am I a sinner made right before a holy God? It is our position before God. And as we come in here 
As we come in here as sinful beings, there's always the question of how am I measuring up? How am I able to to stand? And the reality is you're not able to stand apart from the work of another. And so our justification, as Paul's been talking about in the whole letter in places like like chapter 2, verse 8, for it is by grace that you have been saved and this through faith, and this is not of yourself, but is the gift of God. That is justification. Or in other places like Romans of, of five, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or sorry, Romans eight. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's justification. And why can Paul say this? Because justification says you are not made right by your works. Again, reinforcing everything that he has talked about. You're not made right by your works, but by the work of another. In other words, the righteousness that you need, the righteousness that I need is given to you by the perfect work of Christ through faith. Christ has come to us in human form to live a life that we couldn't live and to die a death that we couldn't die. And in that death, we call it the great exchange takes place. The truly innocent one for the guilty many. And the truly guilty, you and me, are declared the innocent. 2 Corinthians 5 puts it this way, He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. What could communicate God's love and his goodness and the reality that he has not withheld anything from yours people than that right there? Which is exactly, again, what would be the target for the adversary. Righteousness, justification, is prominent in our standing as believers. Because it is how we know that we truly are new creations in Christ, that we truly have a new identity in him and thus belong to God and Christ. It is at the heart of what we call the union with Christ. It is at the heart of what Paul has been teaching this whole time when he adds in Christ to almost all of these rich, thick, Gospel statements. It, 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 I can't say enough of it. It's prominent. <laughs> Any attack on this feature of the gospel, as we saw last week, will lead to despair or to self-righteousness. And the latter, self-righteousness, or thinking that God helps those who help themselves, friends, that is no armor at all. And I was thankful for the work of Ian Duguid's uh, commentary on the armor of God. He says, do not be unarmored with your own armor. And one of the best ways to figure out where or how we are putting on self-armor is to ask what area of my life, by how I'm living or by how I'm thinking about myself or even how I'm thinking about others, usually looking down on them, am I saying, this is where I no longer need the shed blood of Christ. That's where you're putting your armor on. And friends, that is no armor. If you're not sure what that might be, ask a close friend. They will tell you. But what is more crucial to the gospel than justification? At the same time, what is more deadly than to create doubt surrounding one's justification? This is the breastplate of righteousness, which is the righteousness of Christ. And when that doubt comes in, when those arrows come in, when, when, when you are either on one side of the self-righteousness, um, you know, grid, 
or you're on the other side of just despair that God, like God must think I'm the worst person in the world. It, it, it is reminding yourself, if you have to think about it, like visually putting on this breastplate that is what given to you as God's armor, that is the righteousness of God. And I'll come back to the nostalgia thing. This is why this is hard, because you're actually living, being asked to live of what is ultimately true for you and will be fully true for you on Christ, in Christ's return. You have no experiences today of what it feels like to be 100% righteous, though God sees you as that. And so this is why we need that armor, because we are constantly being challenged and buying into uh, the subtle doubts that the adversary gives us and lies that, no, we, we, we aren't who God says that we are. We've got to move on. Next, we get to the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. These shoes serve like the belt of truth somehow, some, some, and somewhat of a dual purpose. Um, having been reminded of the gospel message that says that we are truly made righteous because of Christ, this reality frees the Christian both internally and externally from mission. What do I mean by internally? There's an internal confidence that comes as the gospel continues to wash over us of reminding us that the wall of hostility has been broken down, that, that, that we actually truly have peace between God and ourselves and God and others. Again, this is a summary of everything Paul's talked about. And when you know that there is this sort of internal peace there, this, this internal confidence because of what the gospel again has done for you, <clears throat> this gives us confidence as we go out into the world. The external confidence then that we might call it, or the freedom to go and to proclaim good news to others. As Isaiah 52, 7 writes, How beautiful upon the mountain are the feet who bring of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. It's not so much that this peace reflects itself in evangelism, although that's true, but that it gives Christians a boldness and a confidence to proclaim something to others that is so utterly wonderful, so utterly beautiful, they know none of it could happen apart from God's work in their life. Do you see the difference? Again, this is what the gospel does for us. This is the peace that this, this armor is reminding us of. See, evangelism, we could say, is the work of communicating your faith to others in various ways. But that's different than a boldness that comes when you realize I am saved by grace and this is a work of the Spirit. I did nothing to deserve this. This is utterly amazing and completely a work from God in my life. In other words, this gospel of peace that creates this external freedom and confidence knows that the gospel has very little anything to do with me and is all about Christ. And I think it's worth asking, have you experienced that? And maybe this is where we get a little nostalgic, right? Remember that, that time in college or that retreat or maybe it was a few years ago when the speaker came and I just really got on fire for the Lord as we like to say sometimes. I don't know if it's appropriate to send you back there or not, but I'm simply asking, have you ever, have you experienced that? Is that peace within you that creates both the inner confidence but also the external confidence to go and to boldly proclaim something that you know is so beautiful and wonderful it could have never come from yourself. So you just have to talk about it 
or you have to share it with people or, you know, we just, you just live it out in a way that is so freely um, non-scripted and just who you are. Because that's what the gospel does to us. When that happens, there is a footing, a readiness to share something that isn't rehearsed or something someone else has given you to say. It's something that comes uh, most naturally and effortlessly. It is something that happens in us because our hearts have been stirred. That's the peace that these shoes are referring to. For Paul, a Christian whose heart is stirred up by the peace that the gospel brings because its grace is so amazing as like the soldier's boots that take him into battle. Take him into mission. All right. <clears throat> well, we talked about the shield last week. Uh, I, I won't touch on it here. Uh, I'll move for the sake of time to the helmet of salvation. Um, this is the last piece of armor that Paul gives us. He says, finally, um, put on the helmet of salvation. And the summary, we might say, of the gospel is that we have this salvation in Christ. So again, all these components, as I've tried to lay out for you, all of them point to one thing, and that's the gospel. Where the helmet was the last piece of armor to be put on, it signals this ultimate hope uh, that we have in this life and the next, that we are not our own, but belong to Jesus, our Savior. Therefore, the crowning jewel of this new identity that we are told about, this new self of God's love for us in Christ, is the salvation that accompanies it. And what is salvation for the believer? Is it just going to heaven and having nice things, walking those streets of gold, getting that mansion you've always wanted. No. Heaven is being in the presence of God, where I'm sure there'll be plenty of nice, fun things. But it's actually getting him. That's your salvation. That's your final resting place. Cannot be this sort of... <laughs> Desire to go be in this sort of peaceful world and have the things of God, but not so much care about God. That's no protection. And here's why. Right? If it's not God himself who, who you most, more than anything else, desire and want, then when those real trials and temptations come, even those that might cost us our life someday, as it does to many of the Christians in this world, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. This helmet of salvation reminds us over and over of what it is that is truly our prize, that what the gospel has truly done for, for us, which has reconciled us to him and gives us him fully. Perhaps when Paul was thinking of this particular piece of armor, he thought about how this uh, piece, about, about how the gospel itself shapes our every thought. So we put it on how it in many ways brings us back to the truth that is our belt, the righteousness of God that is ours, that is our breastplate, the peace we have between God and one another, the faith that God gives us that unites us to him in the first place, the helmet that brings us back to all of these places, all of these things, because it always reminds us of where the salvation comes from in the first place. It is but God's grace to us in Christ. And that is your armor. If our good news is not Christ-centered and thus, sorry, if our good news is not Christ-centered and thus grace-centered, then we haven't begun to possess the truth of the scriptures. 
If it is not grace, we have no righteousness to point to. If it is not grace, then there is no peace that we have between God and others. If it is not grace, what shield is there that can truly snuff out the lies of the evil one? If it's not grace, what hope do we truly have that shapes our every thought and thus our actions? Again, if our good news is not Christ-centered and thus grace-centered, we haven't begun to possess the truth of the scriptures. And we are open for attack. Well, these are the pieces of the armor. They all speak to one thing, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ that is yours by faith. Two points of application, and I'll make this short. The first is prayer, and the second is the word of God, as Paul ends this section in verse 18 to 20. And I simply want to say these things about it. Uh, just, there, it's no surprise that, that, that Paul uh, bathes all of this essentially in prayer in those last two verses. But he also gives us a weapon, as you notice, like the sword, which is the word of God. And it makes sense, right? When, when, when we think about these things and we think about what it means to pray over, uh, you know, both in, in a reflection about the armor and what it is, but also to look at the word of God, but to combine these things, Right, that this would actually be uh, the way that, that, that we reinforce this armor. What better way to know and be reminded of the promises of God to us in Christ, which is the gospel, than his word, but also to pray that word back to our, ourselves. What, what better way to, to fight spiritual attack than using spiritual means of reinforcement like prayer? And for Paul, prayer is not so much a weapon, but the way that we apply the weapon of God's word to our lives. And what better way to be strengthened in the whole armor of God than praying the very promises that make up the whole armor of the gospel. It is not magic, y'all. It is promises. And in that way, it's logic. Here's what's been said to you. Here's what's been done for you. Meditate on these things. Pray over these things. Speak these things to yourself. And in that way, reinforce the armor. But if I stopped there, I'd be doing a severe injustice to you with what Paul has in mind here about this armor. And it feels like I'm putting way too much into one sermon, which is typical. I'm sorry. But his point here is communal. This is the whole theme of the book. It's unity. It's oneness. And what that means is that your armor isn't just for you, nor is your armor the only armor you have. And so we as Christians, when we pray for one another, prayers of supplication, prayers of intercession, right? When we pray for one another, we are actually, in essence, holding shields over one another. And, and sometimes, for some of us, we're in stages of life and seasons of, seasons of, of life that we, we don't have the strength to hold that shield up. And so we need the body of believers to do this. We got to talk a little bit about this with the session last week, but when you think about armies and the, and the battle, uh, the, the way that army and military, the way they fought and those who were successful, it was, it was the armies that, were, that stuck together, that held together, that were disciplined in their training to be one. There's no surprise there as opposed to the armies that would just sort of, you know, spread out and try to intimidate with loud noises and banging their shields. Uh, those are the armies that lost. 
But to the degree that the army stood together, shoulder to shoulder, sharing the weapons that they all have in times of need, was the degree to which they won. I have to believe that this is exactly the way that Paul's thinking. When he thinks about the unity of the church, the oneness of the church, of who we are in Christ, to the degree that we are united and stay together and don't let right, the, the, the arrows, as it were, of Satan come in and fracture and divide. This is the degree right, that we experience the blessings and the joys of the gospel, of life in Christ. And especially to the degree that we experience healing from the gospel and are reminded over and over of the things that, that maybe we're just, we're, we're stuck in. And if there's something for our culture today that is hyped up, right, on individualism, of going out and, 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 and taking our own, this is where we fail. Your best hope outside of Christ in you is sitting to your left and your right, and of course, as a local expression, I mean that also in the capital C church, that we are united in Christ, we are one, and our prayers for each other become the weapons for each other that we need at times of despair, suffering, trial, and to the degree that we don't go rogue, but we stay united, is the degree to which we persevere, as Paul asked for. Notice that he asked for prayer. The apostle asked for prayer. He is not going rogue. He's inviting you to put a shield over him. Would any of us dare, if he were in this room, to say, here, let me pray for you and put my shield over you, apostle? Probably that would feel kind of strange. But he believes his own theology. And the text here commends that to us as well. Believe your own theology. Believe what is true of you in Christ. And thus, what's true of all of us being united together as one. I'll come back to where we started last week. It, it all comes back to who you align yourself with. Are you in that first Adam? The one who failed to speak scripture and truth in the face of deceit and lies and thus fell? Or are you in that second Adam who goes out into the wilderness, doesn't fight Satan with something of himself in the sense of just his own power and authority? What does he fight Satan with? The word of God. And the plan is we even think about that, right? The armor, right? The job as the Christian is not to mimic what Jesus did in the wilderness. That's not Paul's point. The plan is to know that because you are in Christ, his words here are your words. His words to Satan are your, your words. His, his life and ministry, his righteousness is your righteousness. His death is your death. His resurrection is your resurrection. His salvation is your salvation. What is true of him is true of you. Who are you aligned with? Because when we rest in that, the questions that enter our minds of, is God good? Is he keeping something from me? Can he be trusted? Does he love me? Go away. They are snuffed out. And while there might be new ones coming the next day, may we continue to be united as a local expression of the church to pray over those concerns for one another, to remind each other of, of, of the gospel, of these pieces of armor that are true for you, for those who are in Christ. This is Paul's appeal to us. This is his encouragement to us. 
This is who we are aligned with. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, as we come now to the table, whatever whatever words have either fallen on deaf ears or have been unhelpful, may the tangible reminder of your promises to us in these elements do what Paul is saying this armor does, which is reinforce the reality of God's love for us, reinforce the reality of how he sees us, of who we are only because of Christ. And would that be our armor for today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.